You are listening to The Last Aid Station on Mountain Bike Radio, your source of off-road news and highlights. Welcome to The Last Aid Station here on Mountain Bike Radio. This is Mark, and joining me again is my trusty companion, the Tonta to my Kimasabe, Steve Hamlin. Welcome, Steve. How have things been? Pretty good, Mark. What's going on? I like it. <laughs> yeah. Watching the weather, see that you guys have been getting quite a bit of weather. You've been getting any riding in? Yeah. Uh, we did get some snow that actually accumulated for a few hours last week. It's been 70 the last couple of days, so I, I've been getting in quite a few miles. Oh, cool. So. Yeah, so in some of your uh, pictures, it looks like you guys have some great conditions on the single track and stuff. Yeah, I rode some single track yesterday at one of my local trails. Uh, in St. Croix Falls, Wisconsin, they're they're fantastic. Uh, the weather here has been here. I'm here in North Carolina. Has been very decent temperatures, but probably the last four days or so, just rainy, misty. Um, so no single track riding. Been getting a little bit outside, mostly indoors, just because work schedule and that evil time change that came down last weekend. It's killing me, killing me. Uh, but. Anyhow, that's uh, that's what's been going on here. Um, we'll talk a little bit late, later. I've finally been getting some rides in on that kicker that I got. Uh, haven't been doing any formal training on it, but have been having some fun with it. And we'll talk a little bit toward the end of the show, like what kind of stuff I've been doing and cool. um, some the initial review of it. So big, 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 big news coming up. There's big news coming up here for the last aid station. Want our listeners to be the first. I want you to be the first, Steve. Um, hey, I'm curious. It's a lot of tribulations here to really come out to this outcome, to come up with um, this idea that I had. Uh, but the last aid station, officially, I'm, I'm saying it now, we're going to stick with it. The last aid station is going to be closed on Black Friday. We are not going to... Um, <laughs> We're not going to produce any, uh, any shows on, on Black Friday. Um, so instead of hunting down deals, go hunt down new trails, hunt down new gravel, hunt down new routes, hunt down new areas, hunt down new people to ride with. Just get out and ride. Going um, for a ride. Go for a ride. That's, that's the truth there. Um, kind of a cool thing that REI did. Of course, that's been getting the big news. Yeah. And uh, I like it. And I hope, uh, maybe there, a trend starts. Maybe we can see other businesses, especially those in the, outdoor service industries or outdoor that's, retail industries to really push that. That would be a great thing. Yeah. It's a pretty big deal for REI to go across the board on that. Yeah. It's, I mean, I think it's a really cool, cool idea. Now they're getting enough buzz out of it. It's actually going to be a profitable for them because people, more people are probably going to be inclined to shop there because yeah. of a cool stance like that. But regardless, I think, I think it's a really cool idea and hopefully it gains some momentum and, and other people that are in similar parts of that industry or uh, business um, will follow suit. I think it's a it's a great idea for you're off that day. Go out with your buddies. Go out with your family. Go outside. Go outside and do something cool and new. Big news um, just came out as of yesterday, folks. So I'm going to put this right up front. The Six Hours of Warrior Creek and the Brushy Mountain folks, these folks have been huge supporters of last aid station since the very beginning. And if you follow them or the last aid station several months ago, I mentioned that there was big talk of them canceling another one of their events. In addition to the Wilkes 100 and the relatively recent demise of the burn 24. And that it was very likely that 2016 would be the last year of the six hours of warrior Creek. 
Now, that is a huge race here in the Southeast. Lots of people actually travel from well outside the Southeast to race it. Early season six-hour racing on just some ridiculous, curvy, bermy trails. Flowy trails. Uh, many would say that it's not something they would want to ride every day, but, man, it's fun to ride once or How twice. How long is the trail day. system? Um, the, the, where they race on, it's about a 13-mile loop. Okay. Um, but it is fast. Um, it's big built up corners. I forget like 3000 berms or something like that. In addition, oh yeah. Like every turn is bermed. Um, is and it it's, uh, like a newer Imba style trailer? Uh, yeah, it is. It is very relatively new. It was given Epic status several years ago, but not only does it include warrior Creek, it also includes the victory trail, um, which connects it and Bark Mountain, which is a little bit more of a rugged type trail system. But all three are on in Wilkesboro, North Carolina, and they're all connected almost. There's a few sections of road, two, three miles of road that in the spots where you couldn't connect trail. Okay. But uh, it's a, it's amazing trail system. It is one of the funnest races um, I've ever done because it is fast. I mean, you've got it's 13, 13 and a half miles uh, loop. One single loop that just literally circumnavigates this campground that they take over for the whole weekend because it's the weekend before the campground opens. So they actually open it up just for racers that weekend. That so the, sounds like fun. And the the trail system is fast. It is plush. It is packed. It is amazing trail system. I mean, you've got top guys doing that 13 miles in 54 minutes or 52 minutes. I mean – Nice. relatively fast. I mean, it's got, it's the world's largest pump track, um, the world's fastest uh, 13 miles of BMX you'll ever do, guaranteed. Um, but it's a, it's a fun race. The thing about this race is, is that it is extremely popular. Every year it sells out faster and faster and faster. Last year, for 2015, it sold out in seven minutes. 350 racers, seven minutes. It's like a rock concert. It truly is. And it actually has that kind of a vibe um, in the pit area. I mean, lots of... Wow. That's... Uh, is everybody just basically sitting there on the... Yeah. You have to be sitting there on the computer and log in. Um, the thing about the 350 <laughs> is is there is a there's a big, very, very, very big duo category. And so... Those people, even though there's only one of them on the race course at a time, they count as two. And okay. so it's not necessarily 350 people racing all at the same time. Very large start field. I mean, usually you have probably 200 people on course at a time or so. Um, but as I said, several uh, three or four years ago, it sold out in 15 minutes and 10. Last year, seven. I, I wouldn't doubt that if you don't get in the next five minutes, in the first five minutes, you're not going to be, you know, real apt yeah. to get in. And then, of course, there there are. I mean, there are people that come across people selling their entries as the as the race approaches. Yes, that's possible. But literally, you literally have to be on your computer 9 a.m. on uh, January 16th. So that's the date. The race date will be. It's the first week in April, in, right? April second. April second. Yeah. So the race is April second. Um, registration is January 16th at 9 a.m., folks, 9 a.m. If you log in at 9, 10, you're done. You don't, there's no sense in even wasting your time. So great, great race. It's a great early season race. It's it's even before Kohata, which uh, follows in our area three or four weeks later. Unbelievable organization, unbelievable race direction. The safety is great. The The volunteers are great. And even though it's a 13-mile course, 
lots of places where, you know, people set up, you know, hand ups and there's lots of, they put all different kinds of people on different parts of the course. It's not too hilly. There are on that 13 miles, there are probably three, what I would call significant climbs, but no more than maybe 150, 200 foot climbs on the course. But for the most part, just rolling flowy trail. So is a campground open for camping for the weekend too? So just- um, it is. So they, they so you can like register. Weekend of fun. Yeah. Yeah. So when you register for the race, it'll ask if you want camping for Friday night or for Saturday night or for both mm-hmm. nights. Most Many people do both of those, and it's a big party yeah. atmosphere, um, especially on the night after the race. Yeah. Um, big, I mean, just a, it becomes like almost like a little mini mountain bike community there. Yeah, it's awesome. I was looking at it online right now while we're talking. It looks, looks like Yeah, fun. so anyhow, I really like to promote those guys. They certainly don't need my promotion because they're going to sell out instantly, but those guys are um, a great group, do amazing things for a great, great trail system that in the middle of North Carolina, you wouldn't expect. It's not truly mountains. It's not really truly the flatlands. It's kind of in the middle. It's in the Piedmont area, but it makes for great mountain biking. And those guys have built up an amazing trail system. It's a, you know, Imba Epic status, great, great trail system. And, And I advise anybody who's interested to sign up. It's a great event. You won't regret it. I'll be there. Lots of people will be there. There's always um, a great group of people all hanging out after the race. And it's such a cool community and a cool feel. So that's, that's my promotion of a race um, that I think everybody should join. Uh, maybe if I can talk Steve in, he can come down for it. Um, <laughs> I, I saw your notes on it. I already yeah. Google mapped it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why we're talking here. I mean, so. it's a whole weekend. It's perfect. It's perfect. So anyhow. Um, the, the internet's handy. <laughs> yeah. In other news, the UCI Marathon Series, which we sometimes follow here on the last aid station, is usually dominated by unknowns. Every year, with the exception of this year, Urs Huber, yeah. um, who rides for Team Bulls, just absolutely walked away with it. And it's likely not due to him actually targeting that series, um, but he nearly doubled the points of any other rider in the series. The series is more of an afterthought. There's no jersey. There's no marathon cup, so to speak. But they do get points for UCI marathon distance races. No sponsors out there that I know of are giving these guys airfare and travel, and they, it is truly a global series. You've got races almost in alternating weekends in Australia and South Africa and Europe and Canada, and so the, the race is kind of all around the world, and nobody actually targets it to try to hit all those races, but there is a point series. But this year, Team Bulls Huber, he just destroyed everybody. Um, consistently, he performs almost always at the highest level in the marathon series, He's usually there in the top five or eight. He also does very well in the UCI stage races, like yeah, we're going to talk about Cape him Cape, a little yeah. bit, I think, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We are. We, are, we actually have some race results, but um, anyhow, he is. He just absolutely destroyed everybody. I just let everybody know. Um, he on Team Bulls is there probably their top rider. Really, that Team Bulls team is really the only competition to the Topeak Ergon team, which really targets those races also with the only exception being occasionally when specialized, they'll throw, you know, Yaroslav Kohavi or Todd Wells or someone in to hit a few of those races. So Salser used to do it, uh, but now that he's retired, he's not doing those nearly as often. But anyhow. Is there a place that, I mean, if you uh, lived, you know, whether being in the U.S. or Europe or Australia, that you're more apt to find more races to get, to get more points if you were. I, would, or? I mean, I would imagine uh, Europe would be your best bet because um, I'm sure all of Prime. those countries over there, you know, France and 
Switzerland and Italy, Luxembourg, all those guys yeah. are going to have like marathon race, UCI marathon series races. The thing about it is those, those marathon is, I think it, I think by UCI rules, it's anything over 70 K it's considered a marathon distance or 65 K something like that. Okay. Some of those races over there are very, very, just like they are in the United States where some people calling a marathon being um, anything over like 30 miles. Well, meanwhile, the NUE exists for 100 milers, and then you've got races even outside of that that are 120, 130 milers. So right. very difficult. They're almost always, at least in the Europe side of things, very climbing heavy, usually in the Alps or the Pyrenees, and very um, almost like goat path kind of kind of trail riding with with some dirt roads and maybe some pavement linking the different sections of the course. But I know those some of those tra- some of those races are as short as probably 60 or 70 miles, so 100K distance, all the way up to um, some of the races that the top guys do, like Kohavis and and Hubers and Lakatas do, 130, 140-mile races. And so okay. it's, it's, it's very varied. And I think it would be very difficult, one, to target those races because they're all over the world, um, though Europe would definitely be the best place to do it. But the second thing is, is the distances are so varied that it would be very hard to train for a 130 mile race and a 50 mile race. I mean, to be really be at the yeah. top of the UCI standing. So, uh, but anyhow, Huber just destroyed everybody. And not only did he destroy everybody in this series, he's also consistently there on the top of the UCI stage race rankings and things like that. So that's the, that's where he finished this year. Um, very impressive in the past. I've always mentioned guys that nobody's really even heard of here in the United States doing very well because they, you know, the kind of, it's kind of almost like the, the European NUE series. They just go out and do those races all around and, and do very well, and nobody really challenges them. So hmm. on some tech news. Fox uh, and uh, Marzocchi, right? Yeah. So Marzocchi, um, there's been a lot of talk that Marzocchi was well on its way out, declaring bankruptcy and shuttering its doors. And, and then just a few weeks ago, Fox announced that it was buying Marzocchi and quote unquote, saving it. I have to guess that this truly isn't that Marzocchi is really going to continue to exist as Marzocchi for long. I'm guessing that there are some assets or some technology that Fox really wants to use on their forks and they're just buying it, the proprietary stuff. Um, I think Marzocchi may continue for a year or so and be followed under like maybe a Fox warranty system. Uh, But I think Marzocchi, as we have known it over the past 15, 20 years, I think it's going to really change and may still disappear, um, though Fox has bought them out. There's nothing said about keeping the brand. The quotes from the Fox reps is that they are acquiring assets and looking forward to new distributor channels, which to me means... They're just going to liquidate that place. <laughs> yeah. Well, you have to kind of wonder, too, are they, is it a, a way to them to get into upper and lower yeah. markets or and whatnot, too? I would have thought I would have thought that Fox was, at least now, is a much more global brand than Marzocchi is. And, you know, they mentioned that they want to get into new distributor channels. I, I would have thought that they probably already had those over Marzocchi, but... Um, that's what they related. So it'll be interesting to see yeah. how that, how, how Fox evolves into some of the Marzocchi market, perhaps. So yeah. that's, that's what's going on there in the tech thing. It'll be interesting to see where that goes. Uh, yeah. fat bike races. You're, you're Mr. Fat bike. Give me a, going to try to be, I'm going to get you a little name tag. It says Mr. Fat bike. Um, yeah. so, so tell me what's going on up, 
Great Lake Fat Bike Series is now it's a whole bunch of dates. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm going to try to be Mr. Fat Bike. The, uh, uh, but yeah, all, all the Great Lakes Fat Bike Series races, registration's opening up. 906 Polar Roll has not opened up yet, but that opens up in like, well, by the time this is out on the air, it'll probably be open. So the 8th of November. Um, but Cayuna Whiteout's open, Frozen 40, Solstice Chase is actually less than two months away. Uh, Berkey's open. I just, I was on the Berkey site last night because I, I just registered for the Berkey and I saw a thousand person cap. Wow. Yeah, it was. Now, is that for last time I looked? I don't know if that's for all the races. That's what I was wondering because I mean, uh, by far the, the skiing I would imagine is the number one. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, so I don't know. Uh, there must be they're gearing up to have a big event. So I, I'm I've registered for like four of these so far. So and I'm waiting for 906 Polar to open up. So okay. And uh, regarding the Berkey, do you know how they um, do the races? Do they how much do they separate the different modes of um, transport, so to speak? So something new I found on the website last night, details are not out on it, but there was a note on the website that said that they were going to have uh, starting gates, assigned starting gates and, and details to come out. So I don't know how they're going to set those starting gates. Um, it's I think it's the last one of the series, last race of the series or, or one of. So maybe they're going to use where you're sitting at in the series up to that point to the stage. I'm not sure. OK, so cause that, I mean, that's all. That's a lot of that's a lot of racers to take off. Okay. Remember the Margie Gessick we were talking about? Yeah. Race is sold out. Three hundred no, spots. It's uh second year of the race. And, and those guys, I mean, they were putting on a pretty big push to to get to build it up, but there was also you know, they only had fifty people in the race this past year and, and everybody signed back up like in the first couple of days. So word is it's a really gonna be a really good race. So and there's a lot of there's eleven thousand feet of of uh, climbing on it too. So you'll be busy. So th there's actually 228 people I checked. It's in the actual hundred miler, uh -huh. 60 some in the 50. And then there's eight, eight folks going to run it. First, I find it interesting that there are more people in the hundred than the 64. That is really cool. And yeah. promising. Um, second thing, running it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, uh, you know, that Mark, that's something that, uh, there's a, there's a, there's, there's a few races up here like that. So there's uh superior, I believe they're called the superior endurance runs in the fall that are in Duluth as well, mm -hmm. that there's some huge runs like that is uh, going on as also. So I don't know, people like pushing the limits. So I, I'll pedal it, but uh, yeah, either, either way. Uh, I like it. I mean, it's kind of cool to see that this is actually going in the opposite direction. I mean, the, the, uh, if you go back into the history of ultra mountain bike racing, those races actually started as mountain bike versions of ultra runs. Shenandoah, mm -hmm. Shenandoah 100, Mohican 100. Those races actually existed as ultra runs long before Kohuta 100, long before they ever had mountain bikes on the course. And then people said, well, why don't we just use the same course and put mountain bikes on it? And people are like, oh, perfect. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of how those races actually evolved. And we're actually the kind of the history of ultra endurance came from the mountain bike side of things, you know, they actually came directly from those same courses, but it's kind of cool to see it go the other direction. Um, yeah. And it, that is actually a very, very popular segment of the, of sport of endurance sports. Yeah. It's remarkable to see uh, Tom Parsons of Dirtwire TV just put something on his Facebook or on one of his social media things that, 
hit the biggest downloads that Dirtwire TV has had this year was at the Mohican 100 run that he covered. Not any of the mountain bike racing, not any of the cyclocross racing, but the Mohican 100 trail run. And that is kind of cool because not being part of that segment of the, of athletics, I, I would never have guessed that. I know there's tons of people that run 100Ks. I mean, doing like a 5K, 10K, you know, even marathons. I know plenty of people that train for that. I can't think of very many people I know, one or two maybe, that are into the ultra running thing. But it's cool that they have, you know, there's a huge fan base. There's a huge participant number out there for those people. So that's kind of cool. I I, I think you see it more and more. I mean, people are, uh, and I don't know if you see it in the the younger folks or not, but I think when people get to uh, their mid thirties and their forties, they're looking for a challenge. Right. I th- well, you know, I think to test themselves. I think, I mean, getting a little bit psychological here, I think part of it is, is the, the mindset that, you know, society has kind of evolved into where everybody's a winner and everybody gets a, a ribbon when you finish that kind of thing that some people in that mindset are saying, well, if that's the case, then I want to do something that's truly challenging. I don't want a yeah. finisher driven to do 5k, yeah. but I'll take a belt buckle for doing a 50 miler. Yeah. And I think, and that's kind of cool. And it's, and it's always just you versus yourself. And of course, the longer the distance with the exception of three or four people in the race, it really is you versus yourself. And you're going yeah. through all kinds of psychological and mental and, you know, yeah, absolutely. physiological issues. And then you've got to push through. And that's, that's really, that's really cool. And I'm glad to see that the Gessick is going to have a running division with it. Yeah. Um, uh, any other races up that way? Yeah. Uh, something that had just come out, we, we kind of uh, talked about this. I think it was on the last show or maybe the one before that about um, the NUE series having, uh, you know, a series to go with the hundred K type events or right. the shorter, shorter distances. And uh, the Lutz and 99 are just announced uh, a 69 miler race. Okay. Uh, which is pretty cool because you either got the 39 mile race, which is doesn't really touch any of the ATV trails and whatnot. And then your next jump is adding 60 miles for the 99er. And uh, so this, this is a good split because they're going to add some ATV trails. They haven't released the course for it, but you'll, you'll get a little more of the ATV rugged trails in it and, and off some of the gravel roads a little bit more and a little taste of what the hundreds like um, without having to jump all the way into it. Okay, so cool. Uh, there's, there's still actually, five thousand feet of climbing too with it. Yeah, I've actually seen, and I wasn't going to mention it, but there's actually several races that have opened up registration um, in the NUE for next year. Uh, but they are now also including not only a hundred k event, um, but for example, like Kohuta is actually doing a fifty k event. So okay. they're just trying to get more and more people because I guess they they see. I mean, when I was at Kohuta this year covering it, I noticed that there were a lot of spouses there with mountain bikes. But they weren't doing the hundred or the hundred K. Yeah. They were going out for a ride because they're like, well, you know, I want to be here when he finishes and I don't know how long it's going to take me to do a hundred K. So, you know, I'll just go off for my own ride. But I guess by opening it up another, you know, putting a 30 miler in there, they're like, this allows people to actually do this race yeah, and still be back in time to see their spouse or friends finish the longer distance races. It's kind of a cool thing. It gives you a taste of the course and what, your friends and people that you know that you're there with are going through without putting all of the, you know, the bonking and 
dehydration and stuff that, that somebody's got to drive home. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right? So, <laughs> and so it's kind of cool. Uh, it'll be interesting. Um, the, I, I just read that Kohata had opened up registration. They have that and they're going to run all those races. They run almost all their races at exactly the same time. I mean, they're separated usually by 30 minutes, I think between the events. And I'd imagine they'll do the same for the 30 miler, but they're going to run the 30 miler in the opposite direction. So you'll, you'll never impact the people on the course of the 100 miler or the 100K. So if someone can be a beginner and get in and know that you're not going to get run down by some pro coming up behind you, um, which is kind of cool, gets gets people out there, gets people involved, gets people on the course with plenty of time to get back and cheer on their people and friends and family coming in for the longer races. So Yeah, you know, I saw, I believe the, I was looking at the Tatanka 100, yeah. and I I think there's a shorter race there too. And it, it starts, I, I think it starts like a couple hours after the hundred. Right. And that way, like if somebody that you're with is doing the shorter race, they can actually drop you off, see you start the hundred miler yeah. and still make it to their race as well and, and get finished before you you're done. Yeah. I think there's going to be, I think there's going to, I think you're going to see a more growing trend of the NUE. And I don't think it's necessarily coming from the NUE. I think the NUE exists great for those hundred mile events and perhaps they're going to include a hundred K series or a shorter distance series. But I think the promoters are seeing a need for that um, because they're all individual independent promoters of the NUE that go together to form the series. Right. And I think they're seeing those people standing there on the sidelines that they, you know, they're not, you know, they're still fit athletes. There are still people that go out and hike and bike and things like that, but they're just not looking for, you know, someone that, you know, it would be nice to have, you know, your, your kid, your younger teenage kids be able to go out and do a race while you're racing. Everybody gets done about the same time or they yep. can cheer dad on as he finishes or mom on as she finishes. And it's kind of cool to make it a big all day event. And I think that's kind of the future. And it'd be silly to not include those people because there are people that want to be involved anyhow. And just, you know, you get somebody hooked. They're going to come back for the longer races in the, in the next few years. So yeah, there, I mean, there's uh, there's certain ones that my kids talk about, right? Yeah, it'd be hard for me to skip a weekend, you know, certain races because my, my kids look forward to the kids' events at it or something. So. Right. Yeah. Um, under um, similar news, since we're talking about the NUE, we had hoped to have the NUE schedule today to announce. Um, it's coming up in the very near future, and we will definitely have it for the next. A podcast that comes out in the next couple of weeks. We'll have a list of those events, maybe even get Ryan Odell on here to talk about those individual events, any changes in the series that may be occurring. Right now, all those NUE competitors and Ryan himself is down at, are down at La Ruta, which takes place this very weekend, competing um, as part of their prize purse uh, for winning each of those individual series, racing in La Ruta, a three-day stage race across Costa Rica on some absolutely horrendous uh, steep climbs and gravel and, and hopefully the next, the next podcast will also have the results of that to get to you guys and see how our champions of the NUE did, uh, the Simrels and Keck Baker and Gordon Wadsworth and, uh, Roger Massey and see how they did, um, over a course that is expected to be very, very, very wet this year. All right. So, uh, that's quite a bit of, uh, New stuff going on, whatnot, Mark. But what uh, we got a lot of races. There's actually been a lot of big races. Going yeah, on. quite a few big races going on. We've got quite a few to cover. Um, everything All over the globe, actually. Uh, yeah, um, stage racing, mountain bike racing, gravel racing. I think we covered it all. 
I'm interested in the Baja. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk about that one. Um, so the Baja 100K, if you remember, I was talking when I did my interview with Keck Baker, which is a fantastic interview, not from my standpoint, but from his standpoint. I think he, I think he really opened up and talked a lot about some really, really, really cool stuff. If you haven't heard it, go back and listen to the Keck Baker interview on the last day station, probably eight or 10 episodes prior to this one. It was good. It was, he was, he's very open in it. Right? Yeah. He's, he's like, Basically, you're just, if you're listening to it, it's like you're sitting in a room listening. Yeah, and that's and that's ex- and that, uh, he is so easy to talk to, and he opens up and he doesn't hide anything, and he's humble, and he's he lo- absolutely loves cycling and loves the sport, and he's been in it forever, and he's done it all, and it's just kind of cool to hear a perspective of someone that is relatively new to the endurance mountain bike thing, and talking about that transition and how he did it, because uh, there's there's a lot of our listeners that are following a similar path. Now they may not be following the path of the elite crit racer to um, mountain biker, but they're probably coming from maybe a road background or um, a non racing mountain bike background that just like long rides and, and how to, how he's transitioned to that. You know, one of the biggest things I picked up from that interview, as far as a tip goes, is he even realizes that for him to get faster, it wasn't for him to improve his fitness though. That's always an important part but was for him to learn how to ride his mountain bike. That made all the difference in the world. I think he made some quote about you can only reaccelerate, you know, jump out of every corner for so long before you're just toast and learning how to ride those corners or learning how to break through those corners makes all the difference in the world and saves all that energy. So uh, it's, it's a, I think it was yeah. one of the better interviews that we've ever had here on the last aid station. It really is an interesting interview and you kind of get caught up and it's an hour and 15 minutes long, but man, time flies right through that interview. So, right. So Keck, I was, I brought up Keck because he mentioned in that interview that he was going down to this race. And so I was really looking forward to seeing um, how he was going to do. The big thing I was really looking forward to is Keck Baker is this year's NUE men's open champion. Also joining Keck Baker is. Jeremiah Bishop, who is last year's NUE National Ultra Endurance Series champion. So it would be kind of cool to see how those guys were going to go head to head. They've met several times this year. Um, one time recently, Keck actually beat him. Um, and at nationals, of course, Jeremiah beat him by about two minutes. Um, so it was going to be kind of cool to see those guys on that course and see how they were going to fare against some of the locals, Tinker Juarez, and some of the other people that were going to throw down down there. Um, so the Baja 100K is just a tad over 100 kilometers. I think it's right around 66 miles or so. Yeah, I, I saw the the video uh, the video out there of it. It's a pretty awesome ride. It is a pretty awesome ride. And we'll put that video up on our show links uh, for sure. But 2,300 meters of climbing. So some that's pretty stout. I mean, yeah. you're looking at... Uh, that work out to it's like eight eight thousand feet of climbing, 8, 000, yeah, yeah. 7, over over uh, yeah over sixty five miles. So um, three primary climbs on the course, including one were almost right from the gun. Um, yep. So the race rolled out like this from the gun. Baker told me that it was just silly fast, just stupid fast. He said it was like the start of a criterium or the start of a cross country race. He said (laughs) immediately everybody was accelerating and he said everybody was anxious and everybody was, you know, trying to bump people off of wheels. He said it was like trying to hold your place in a road pack. And he said 
There was there were some people that were a little bit over their heads. He said he didn't see any wrecks. He said, but there's a lot of anxious riders trying to hold their spot and not get dropped out just on the rollout on the pavement. Mm. Um, the pavement rolled out, and then they dropped down into like a drainage canal that looks kind of like um, like a smaller version of those big concrete drainage canals there in L.A. You always see in the movies, you know, with the cars racing along it and stuff. Yeah. So they go racing along that. Um, Keck would later tell me that he said he was kind of worried in that drainage canal because it's kind of in a seedy section of town. And he said there was glass everywhere. And <laughs> he was just worried about like falling on a hypodermic needle or something. He said, <laughs> you saw, he said he saw anything and everything down in that drainage canal. And he was kind of a little bit sketched out, but he said, he said, um, by then it kind of sorted itself out because they'd kind of been forced almost into, uh, single or double pace line as they hit the bottom of that in the lead group. Well, I mean, they're, but they, they, the elevation is just fairly level until they hit about the four mile mark. And then at the four mile mark up to within like mile seven or something, they climb like 1700 feet, right? Right. Yeah. So they, so they drop down into this drainage canal and immediately as soon as they hit the drainage canal, they actually start climbing on a false flat because it's, you know, the route of the water drainage, so to speak, yeah, yeah. If, there, if there would ever be flash floods or whatever. Um, and they started climbing up this. Keck said that he knew right away that he was not going to be on a good day. And the main reason he said was, one, um, he really hasn't been doing the kind of training that would allow him to have these kind of starts. He has, he's been training 400 milers. Don't, you don't have these starts where everybody's, you know, literally sprinting off the start line, like they're, you know, shooting for a hole. And he said, additionally, he really had put himself in a hole to keep the front group, to stay in that front group without doing the training. And so he'd burned quite a few matches even before the first climb started. So four or five miles into this, he was already uh, quite a bit deep into um, the pain cave, so to speak. Tinker was out there too, right? Yeah. So the quickly... On that first climb, a group of about six or seven riders led by Jeremiah Bishop, of course, um, Eder Freyer, who had, I think he placed third last year, um, and Pablo Voigt, who'd actually placed uh, second last year, I believe, and Tinker Juarez um, were driving the pace. And pretty soon, that group of four had actually crested uh, the top of that first big climb. It's a climbs about 500 meters over 10 K. So you're looking at 1500 feet and six miles. So pretty stout gravel type climb. Baker would said he dropped off the back a little bit and was working with a group of chasers over the crest and they were about 10 seconds back. So there's a group of six or seven led by those front four and then Baker and a group of about three or four behind him. Baker said he took a couple risks on the descent to jump back across that gap and actually made quick work on the, on that to bridge and then almost immediately crashed um, prior to a short flat section. Um, of course, Baker, when we've talked about him in the past, he is really good at flat sections, puts himself down into a time trial position and drills it across the, uh, across the bottom. So onto the sheet short, short, steep climb, just 20 kilometers into the course and Bishop put others on notice with a brisk attack that put distance onto his fellow riders with only Pablo Voigt able to keep pace with Bishop. Um, it took no time for Bishop and his companion to have 30 seconds on a splintering chase group with none other than Tinker Juarez seen rolling along with Eder Ferrer 
a 23-year-old pro cyclist fresh off representing Mexico in Richmond at the World Pro Cycling Championships just weeks prior. So definitely got some talent chasing those top two. After some rolling along the desert floor, the two pairs were onto the single track slopes of another climb, which peaks at the highest point on the course. By far, it is the highest point on the course, but the climb necessarily isn't as steep because it's over quite a longer distance. About halfway into um, the race at this point? Yeah, I think it's about halfway. I think it's 35 miles or so into the race. Yeah. And on the lower slopes of that climb is when Tinker and Frere actually caught Bishop and Voigt up front. And so those guys formed a four-man lead group and really started pushing the pace. And the chasers behind them weren't able to work together as well because they were now in groups of maybe two or three. And certainly some of the suffering from the early portions of the race weren't causing many of them to be very compliant in joining into the chase. Baker would slowly move through the field, joined by much of it by Jeff Herrera, with those two sitting as they worked their way up from 10th up into the top five. Back up front, Bishop again lit off another fuse, and only Frere could keep him um, in sight as he crested the next climb. Topeak Ergon's Bishop would then take some risks on the downhill to establish a gap that he would continue to prove on some of the smaller climbs and rollers and would win in four hours, 20 minutes, and six seconds with IRT Racing's Frere, that 23-year-old super pro, um, just three minutes behind him. Rider Bike Alliance Tinker Juarez would diesel his way out in front of Voigt to finish just 30 seconds behind Frere, with the last member of that final league group, Voigt, taking fourth another couple minutes back. Do they drop like they they drop like six or seven hundred feet, I think, just in the next couple of miles. Yeah, yeah. There's some there uh Baker said there was tons and tons of climbing, and he said he'd been warned by Bishop, who <laughs> actually won this race last year, that always be leery of the corners. Um, despite them, you, you get used to here in the United States with design trails and things like that, that you see what looks to be what the corner is going to be. You can see the angle, of the corner. And yeah. he said, but he said you would go through that corner and all of a sudden there, the corner would steepen or slacken, or you would run into a, a lot of sand or dry dirt that would just change the way you should have approached the corner. And he said, so he never approached the corner, any blind corner, as if it was going to be a consistent corner. And so yeah. it was, he said it was definitely a sketch. It, not hardly any of that was groomed single track. Much of it was cow paths and, um, you know, hiking trails and, and things like that taking place just barely inside Mexico, Ensenada, um, Mexico. So racing from Ensenada, which actually sits on the Pacific coast, up into the mountains around it, and then back to Ensenada on a one single loop course. Keck Baker would end up finishing about another five minutes back of the top four. He would finish in sixth with Jeff Herrera on his heels about another 30 seconds or so back. In the women's race, quickly established to be a two-woman race at the top of that first big, big climb with Stands no tube Sarah Kaufman cresting within a minute of Laura Lorenzo of Team Turbo, a Mexican pro. But Lorenzo would capitalize on the downhills to open up the gaps that grew throughout the day to finish nearly 15 minutes up on Kaufman, who has won this race previously. Uh, but she, uh, Lorenzo, would actually end up winning that race in five hours, 21 minutes, and 36 seconds. Ariana Tucci of the Cannondale Factory team in Mexico, last year's female elite champion, 
really had a tough day. Though she finished third, she finished over an hour down on the women's wow. winner. So tough racing there. Definitely. Thanks, me. If I, if I, I, I think if Keck had to say one word about what that race is, he would say it was hot. He said it was really, 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 really hot. Of course, it took place, I think, I think the 18th of October, somewhere around there. So three, three weeks back or two and a half weeks back. So, okay. um, but exciting racing. I was really cool to see. Uh, I was really interested to see how those guys were going to, how that whole thing was going to shake out. You know, Tinker just prior to this race had been at 24 hour worlds and, you know, six hours in it dropped out of the race. And so I was really interested to see one, how he was going to do. And obviously he did just fine. Um, it was also interesting to see Baker versus Bishop who probably know each other as well as anybody and know their strengths, their weaknesses. And I was really hoping to see more of a back and forth there. But as Baker said that, those initial miles just killed him and he was uh, never really able to keep off his, the heat off his heels. Cause he was always behind on recovery and everything throughout the race. So, yeah. all right. So that's how the racing went down in Mexico. there, South of the border on the flip side, Steve, you've got some gravel racing. You're, you're in the midst of gravel season up there in the in middle central of the country. I mean, you're, yeah, there's a there's a lot of gravel events going on, and uh, we covered the heck of the north, I think, last last episode. So this this episode, we'll, we'll grab one of them. There was a uh, there was a, a good gravel race over in Michigan called the Lowell Fifty, uh, over outside of Grand Rapids, but uh, they had a fifty seven mile and a thirty four mile race, uh, a little shorter distances than the, the heck of the north, but really good turnout, three hundred some racers between the two events so good prizes for men and women both races yeah definitely good to, to talk about and i was able to get in touch with a few of the few of the folks over there so yeah it, as far as the course goes it was relatively flat course there's there's rollers it starts off with some rollers and there's rollers at the end and gravel is a little different right you're not you know on a road bike you'd be coming down smooth pavement oh yeah to the next hill oh yeah uh so Definitely not just, carrying speed like you would on the road. Um, exactly. So. And the other thing is, it's not like you can also move up through the pack quickly. I mean, you're dealing with, you know, even if it's a wide gravel road, dealing with two tri tire tracks, it always make for a nice smooth ride, but tons yeah. of rock and everything everywhere else. So your passing options are limited at best. And sometimes you're not, it's just not going to. Yeah. And you jump out of that, right? And you're hitting washboard and, and whatnot. So, right. so the overall, they, they were averaging, uh, I mean, the, the winner, uh, of the race averaged over 21 miles an hour. That's impressive. So, um, and it was a pretty windy day as well. So, uh, but anyways, the race started off pretty fast and quickly, you know, a, a group of 20 split out as a, as a lead pack going out. And then not that far, well, maybe about 10 miles in, I guess, Jason Young took off on, on a solo sprint out. One guy tried to go with, but fell off uh, pretty quick. So Nathan Williams, took some advantage of a crosswind uh, at one point and finally decided he was going to bridge that gap between him and Jason. A couple guys went with him. They traded a couple of poles and uh, eventually Nathan ended up catching Jason on his own about uh, 18 miles in and back in the main pack, they're duking it out, trying to, you know, minimize that gap that's creating, but they're, they're losing the gap. Um, Dan Korianek, uh, I talked to him. He's, he was in the back of that line when Nathan took the lead out, trying to work his way up to, you know, see if he was a chance to stay on the wheel. But that's not going to happen when you're eight or nine guys back in the line. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so those guys are 
putting on a big push and they're starting to drop people. Every, every roller, they're, they're dropping somebody off the, off the back. Going back up to the front then, six miles from the finish, after Nathan has chased Jason down, bridged that gap, they traded some pulls, you know, for the next whatever it would have been, 30 miles, uh, just the two of them. Nathan takes off on his own and ends up finishing about with a two-minute, little over two-minute lead uh, over Jason. That's uh, yeah. that's pretty impressive to, I mean, to in windy conditions to not only have enough of a cushion with two guys versus a whole pack, uh, but yeah. also to be able to have enough of a gap that you're able to put in attacks early enough that you still finish two minutes in front of your breakaway companion. Um, so he probably had to have done the last at least five, eight, ten miles maybe by himself. Um, yeah, he, he burnt some matches yeah. real early through the whole center of the race and then again yeah. at the finish. Yeah, so, so pretty impressive riding. Yeah. Then there was a big sprint for the finish because that – the rest of that group, you know, they they started dropping people and they were down to about four or five of them coming into the finish. There's a tight, they're out on pavement coming into the finish and there's a tight corner. Uh, and the, the sprint had to happen to the corner and then the finish line is just around it. So um, Dan Kornick took that sprint, came up from four spot in the corner and uh, uh, ended up winning, well, taking third place then. Um, but these, these guys were about six minutes back actually. So cool. So, um, the way I see the results, I see Nathan Williams taking first, riding for yep. the Bissell Advantage Giant Road Team. Of course, it's going to be a you know somebody that knows the tactics and knows how to deal with that stuff. That's that's great. And um, Jason Young, EPS Cycling in second. Yep. And Dan Kornick of Lead Out Racing in third. So yeah, sounds like it. I've heard of that race. It's not like it's a certainly not a unknown race to me, even though I'm probably the better part of a thousand miles away from there. Um, so pretty cool. <laughs> um, so uh, how did the women, any, any news on the women's race? You know, I didn't get any details uh, on the women's race, but they were spread out quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I got some good details on the women's race uh, in the shorter race, but uh, at any rate, Kay uh, Takishita ended up winning the women's race only about 15 minutes back, actually from, from Nathan Williams, or I'm saying about 25 minutes back from Nathan Williams. So, uh, and they were pretty it, spread out over the, over the course. Yeah. The second so second place women, Heather Gross was another 16 minutes back from K. Uh, and then third place was a couple minutes back behind that, uh, Jennifer Carmichael. How did the, uh, how did the shorter race, uh, fare? Yeah. Yeah. You know, we usually don't talk about the shorter races, but there was 275 racers in this one. Right. Uh, so it, it was, uh, it was a pretty good race. There was a new winner for the men this year. And, uh, there was a pretty good race with the top two, two women. So going in 20 miles, uh, same, same deal. The rollers, everything right. A lead group gets split out. Brian Sullivan takes off the front solo while everybody's got their eyes on, uh, the previous year winner, Simon Bailey and Luke Mullis. The group finally started breaking down and splitting up around mile 15. And so keeping this in mind, what I said about the women. So Amy Kimber and, uh, Marie Dersham. Both racing for OAM now team, uh, OAM now. They were hanging with this lead group of guys this whole time, uh, ep- up every single one of the rollers. And, um, so that's still going on in the back. Brian Hells holds his, uh, gap for like another 10 miles. The rest of your, you know, they're pulling. They finally realize this is real. The finish ended up, they, they caught him eventually. Bill Martin, uh, ended up, you know, coming up in the uh, the final turn to take the sprint. So Mary Dersham and Amy Kimber, they they actually hung with that second group of guys 
mm-hmm. uh, for quite a while, actually taking polls for them uh, here and there, mixing it up. And they actually finished just 10 minutes behind the winner of the, the men. Oh, cool. So I'd imagine you're still, how, how much longer do you, is your gravel season going to be uh, going on up that way? Uh, you know, I personally haven't done any gravel racing, but I think as far as Minnesota goes, it's probably over. Yeah. Um, I'd imagine you're probably yeah. any promoter's got to be risking it at this point that there's not going to be ice or snow on the ground. Yeah, I I'm not aware of any big ones left out there or new ones. So okay. And now for something completely different. So what do you got? Last year I I had the opportunity to interview Eric Weber, who is a race promoter here in North Carolina, but his races are known literally worldwide. Um, but he has a ridiculous deviant mind. He is not normal. His races are not normal. His productions are not normal. Um, he is ruthless and he is demented. And he will say all of those things are compliments. Um, he runs Pisgah Productions puts on um, many different races, including the Pisgah 111 and the Pisgah 55.5, which are much more traditional races. Additionally, he puts on Monster Cross, which is a big race here in North Carolina, um, a combination dirt road gravel pavement on the climbs of the Blue Ridge Parkway and things around that area. That's a big race for him. Additionally, he also puts on Double Dare and Pembar, which is the Pisgah Mountain Bike Adventure Race. Anyhow, over the past couple of weeks, he's actually had one of his more popular races, which is called Double Dare. This event sells out every year. It's part of the King of Pisgah series, but it is not, I repeat, it is not your normal mountain bike race. It is a two-day event, but Double Dare is the main event. It's a two-day event, and there had been a ton of rain on the course. But the way the event works is, is that at the beginning of the race, he hands out passports. And oftentimes you often have to race to get your passports. Like sometimes there's a time trial to get your passports. This is raced in a duo format. You have two person teams at the, when you gain your passports, while the race clock is running, you are given five checkpoints. Is this kind of like a, almost like one of those you know, poker run type kind of, this is all, this is truly like, I mean, it's truly like almost like an adventure race, uh, very similar to an adventure race. You're given five checkpoints. The route that you choose is completely up to you. Now this year there were a couple extra rules. Now you can't do anything illegal to get to those checkpoints. Obviously you can't use another vehicle other than your bike. You can't go off trail. You can't um, go across trails. And this year there were several, you can't go across trails or roads that are closed. And this year due to the rain, there were several eroded roads um, and uh, forest access roads that were closed due to trees being down or erosion or what have you. But you're getting all last minute. Yeah. This actually happened very last minute and he actually had to reroute the whole, he had to re kind of change his checkpoint. So the race wouldn't be as affected. Additionally, you're running inside a national forest service area. And so you have to get all the permits and things like that. But anyhow, the five checkpoints that you are given are up to you in the direction you travel. Now, the way it works is is that the checkpoints trump all as far as the number of you don't have to get all your checkpoints but the person who gets the most checkpoints in the least amount of time 
wins. Now, to complicate matters further is you have only 12 hours to get your first five checkpoints. Those first five checkpoints that are given on Saturday. Now, the race on Saturday runs from noon until midnight. So after you get all your checkpoints, and remember, if you get four and head out and try to get five, but make it back to the start-finish line after midnight, you're disqualified. So you have to make a choice. Do I go for the last checkpoint that will get me five or four or three or however many you're going, or... Do I just try to stick with what I have? Um, so five checkpoints on day one. And then at midnight, there is a bonus race. Everybody must participate. It is a short track race through the campground. And when he told me it was through the campground, I thought he meant, you know, through the campground. No, literally through the campground, like around this fire pit, through this tent, Around like through the campers. through the campground through the camping area um, that they <laughs> that they I mean honestly the the after dark the, yeah at midnight um, so honestly I mean most of the campers that are there are participating in the race and so they understand that that also that is not given in duo that is you can race that you're racing that solo but your time bonuses go to your duo team so um, there were bonuses there of ninety. 60 and 30 minutes, it would be taken off your time from your team. So the best situation would be for your, you and your teammate to get first and second. And that would be 150 minutes. You could take off of your time. Now, realizing that you're racing at midnight, a short track race, and then maybe lay down around one. What time does day two start? 6 a.m. So at 6 a.m., you're required to be at roll call where you are given your passports and day two starts on which you must be back to get after those five checkpoints are given out. You try to get as many checkpoints as you can and must be back by 6 p.m. or you're disqualified. Very interesting race format. Most days, regardless of the route you're taking, you're going to be doing somewhere between 70 and 80 miles in Pisgah, which in my mind means 120, 130 miles anywhere else. Um, it is rooty. It is gnarly. It is rocky. It is true mountain biking in my mind. It is not plush. Um, it is fun. Don't get me wrong. Um, but it is, it is definitely technical in many aspects of the riding there. Hilly. Yes. It's mountainous in some parts of the courses. Wet. Always. Pisgah actually sits in a rainforest. It is truly designated as a rainforest. So it is always wet given the fact additionally that in the week prior, it had rained a ton. And so despite it not being necessarily super muddy, it was definitely wetter than normal. And so those that was actually probably had an impact on the course itself. So as a promotion of this race, I I would suggest anybody try this race. It's a fun race to do, but, like a fun but um, it is a lot of riding in a weekend. And to win the event, um, certainly if you are a are a local and you know the Pisgah routes um, and know the fastest ways, even though they may be longer, um, realizing that, you know, you don't want to go up that because that's a big hike a biker. You're definitely, the locals are definitely going to have an advantage, but fitness is still going to have a lot of it. And in addition on that second day, realizing that you're probably only going to get four, five hours sleep at the most after a 12 hour day, and then having to go back into another 12 hour day, certainly you're, your ability to deal with fatigue and mental fortitude is going to play a big part in this race. And as ruthless as this event sounds, this is by 
far not his most demented. Um, so all of these, all of these, uh, checkpoints, um, in addition to not only having these checkpoints every day, one of the checkpoints actually has a special task that you must complete. So not only when you get up to the checkpoint and you hand them your passport to get stamped, do you have to get it stamped? You at one checkpoint every day, there's a special task on day. Number one, the task was hot pepper or hacky sack. Now, <laughs> when you arrive at the, at the, task, you have to either eat a hot pepper or you have to hit a hacky sack three times with your partner. You may say, well, that hacky sack, how, how difficult can that be? You're wearing cycling shoes. Remember, you're wearing cycling shoes and you've just climbed up a mountain to get to the top. Day two, there was one special event called archery or algebra. So you had to either do a nice. great or a junior high level algebra, or you had to shoot an uh, archery type task where you had a simple longbow with um, an arrow and a target. Now, remember, regardless that you got to the checkpoint, if you don't accomplish a task, you don't get the stamp. And so you, you, that checkpoint is no longer uh, is null and void for you. And you have to move on to the next checkpoint. So very interesting way to put these all these races together. This is the last race of the King of Pisgah series. And it literally came down to Thomas Turner had already won the event, the King of the King of Pisgah, regardless, as long as he finished the the event on the weekend, he was going to win the King of King of Pisgah series. Second place was actually Thomas Turner's partner. And it was Barnabas Freustadt, who we've had on the show here before he was sitting actually in fourth place, but depending on how he did and how his competitors did, he could move up as far as second and let me tell you what, Thomas Turner, who we interviewed back at the Pisgah stage race, and Barnabas Freustadt made it their task to put everybody on notice that they were in it to win it. Thomas Turner is, as everybody knows from my interview with him, he is the only guy to have ever beaten Jeremiah Bishop in a stage race on U.S. soil or in North really? America soil. This year at the Pisgah stage race, he beat Jeremiah Bishop. And so his partner, Barnabas Freustadt, who I've had on here before, also, they were out to do some damage. On day one, they swept all five checkpoints, one of the only teams to do so, gain and were the first team back with all five checkpoints. That night at the special task, the race through the middle of the campground, they went one and two, despite both of them wrecking several times. And then on day three, they swept all five checkpoints and came back first with all five checkpoints. And when you say wrecking, is that, uh, did they take out a tent? They uh, I don't on, know the specifics. Uh, somebody did end up on somebody's s'more. Spe- yeah, I don't know the <laughs> specifics. Um, I do know that uh, they were laughing through most of it, um, probably laughing at the ridiculousness of it all. Yeah. Um, but they were laughing pretty heartily. Um, the, the short track race had about a 92 yeah. 90 second to two minute lap. It sounds like a good, yeah, it sounds like a good time. And I can guarantee that there weren't many people probably taking that part of the race seriously. Um, no. there is a huge party atmosphere when it comes to Pisgah productions. Oh, um, they, Eric is a really good guy. And despite him, um, having the reputation of putting on some absolutely ridiculous races, um, and races that, um, he, he's actually, he actually designed a race, um, many years ago called the most horrible thing ever. 
And literally, that was the name of it. It was called The Most Horrible Thing Ever. And it was designed <laughs> literally to not be finishable. It was, it was mirrored after the Barkley Marathons, if you're familiar with that, if you're a runner, where there's so many checkpoints you have to go to. And as soon as you finish one, you have to go to the next checkpoint. You have so much time to do it in. <laughs> but anyhow, um, that race no longer exists in its in that format. First of all, the National Forest Service made them change the name. Um, and second of all, <laughs> second of all, it's now called the Pisgah 36. So it still exists in one form where it's a 36 hour race where you have six stages and you come back to the start finish line after every stage and you're given a new route to go out and do and come back. And so often as was last year, it was actually canceled due to weather. The year before that, it, um, there was only one person who finished it and that race generally is not one that you worry about winning necessarily. You just worry about finishing. finishing it. And it's much more important to say, I finished the Pisgah, <laughs> you know, the Pisgah 36. I mean, that's, that's your goal um, because there's going to be very few people that actually are able to hit all the checkpoints in the time um, standard to be able to move on to the next checkpoint to the or next stage to be able to finish the whole thing. And, and it, and it's 36 hours. It's six or five or six um, stages in, you know, each one designed to be about six hours in length, depending on how fast you are. So, but anyhow, Turner and Freustadt went, just rolled through the whole thing. And Freustadt ended up moving up from fourth to second overall in the King of Pisgah series. And they take the win at Double Dare, um, Turner, who rides for Jameis, and Freustadt, who rides for um, Knox Composites. So that no, was, that's pretty that cool. Was there's there's a different type of racing out. There. It's a different type of racing, and you know what the the cool thing about um, Pisgah is is that community out there. There are so many great great racers in that community, in that mountain biking world that exists almost um, among their own. And every once in a while, like this year when Barnabas Forrestal came out and started competing in a couple of the early season NUE races you start to see how good those guys are when they come out and compete with everybody else. But then they kind of go back to their own little world. Sam Korber is a rider from Pisgah that occasionally does that, and you'll see him finishing in the top two or three at Shenandoah. David Wood, Sam Evans, there's tons of riders that, in general, don't leave that because they've got great racing, great terrain, great trails, and they don't need to leave that. That's cool. And they kind of exist in their own little world, and it's – I'll have to admit, Pisgah is very, very technical riding. But if you enjoy that kind of riding, it's Nirvana. Yeah. So anyhow, that's that's what went down there. I would suggest anybody ever gets a chance to do Pisgah Productions, Eric Weber, any of his races, they are beyond compare as far as being fun. Um, there's a community atmosphere. There's it's they are always, always, always difficult beyond um of just being able to finish one of his events is such an accomplishment. I mean, well, there's all kinds of uh, adventure-type events out there for runners, right? So it's yes. cool to see something out there for, for bikers. Yeah, and, and, and Eric actually comes from that adventure side of things, so he putting his own okay. twist on things. I mean, in the, in the spring, there's a race called the Pisgah Mountain Bike adventure race or PEMBAR as they call, as they abbreviated here. And it's very similar to the double dare, but it is run in that your checkpoints give you bonus time. So not, you don't have to get all the checkpoints. You just have to have the most minimum time. So sometimes it's advantageous to only get three checkpoints and have the shortest time knowing that 
the two checkpoints you didn't get are going to take way too long for the benefit of getting the time bonuses you would have. So it's just a different take on a very similar race. Same amount of mileage generally, um, but it's a different strategy often, oftentimes there. So very, very, very popular, yeah. certainly very popular in Western North Carolina, Tennessee area. And um, all those Pisgah riders are extremely, extremely well-versed in technical riding. Back into something much more normal, Iron Cross. Iron Cross is, many would argue, is the original Ultra Cross, the original Monster Cross, the original whatever you call it. it. Takes place in Pennsylvania. This year we had a brand new venue. It's moved from its previous location over to Williamsport. And a lot of people were kind of concerned that that was going to change the feel of the race, change the difficulty of the race. There used to be a very difficult climb or run up at the previous race, and everybody was worried that that wasn't going to be in it. How are you? How is this going to be a unique race? And um, let me tell you, the people um, that put on Iron Cross, the outdoor experience folks, are know what you want. They're the same group that puts on Transylvania Epic, and they know how to put on races. They know how to put on races very, very, very well. First off, this year, though, it was cold as hell. Temps below 30 at the start, and it never really got much above 30 by race's end. There were snow flurries mid-race. And even though you can go into some races like that, November, December, and expect it, you generally don't expect that in mid-October in Pennsylvania. And even though the sun was out, it was bitter, bitter cold. And it definitely affected some racers. Um, the course is primarily set up around three big climbs. Generally, they're right around 1,000 or 1,500 foot of those three big climbs, each around 10 miles in length, give or take. Um, so some some pretty, some some pretty stuff. Bikes and too, right? if you've seen the pictures, the ridiculousness yeah, of that's what I was a hike-a-bike. Truly hellacious. <laughs> um, I mean, everyone I've talked to that talked about that, all they can talk about is this hike-a-bike. That when I say hike-a-bike, it's more climb-a-bike. Like literally these guys were climbing over boulders up a 30 or 40 degree slope up you know, overgrown bushes and I've never seen it in person, but just the pictures don't, don't look like it's rideable downhill on a downhill bike. Yeah. I, and I don't understand how they even found it because generally they find these things because they're, you know, they're old roads and stuff like that. There's no way you could drive a car up or down that. Yeah. Um, it's just gnarly. The only thing I can think of is that perhaps it was an old eroded road or maybe like an old mine car rail trail thing. And it's just there. Uh, but it is definitely gross, <laughs> nasty. And um, people were saying that the one thing that it, it did do um, is that, that when you were climbing up this thing, especially for your leaders, and they could hear people behind them, and they'd see someone just 100 yards behind them, it seemed like they were much closer than they were. But when in actuality, you know, to climb those 100 yards, it was going to take you the better part of three, four, five minutes to climb that section. So, um Definitely gave a false sense of security or a false sense of perhaps like you being afraid that someone was going to actually catch you. But the smaller climb that follows the run up was very impactful on the race because after climbing all of that and your legs are on fire, many people remembered that climb. Even though when you go back and look at the elevation profile, 
it's really not that significant compared to everything else, but it was probably because of the amount of wear and tear. Yeah, it depends thighs. how your legs are feeling by, at that point. Exactly, by the time you got up to that. And then there was a huge long downhill um, with riders, some of the Strava segments uh, approaching 50 miles an hour on cross bikes and mountain bikes um, as they descended back into the town of Williamsport for the finish. It's a little bit of mix of everything, double track, gravel, pavement. And even this year, they threw in a little single track, which was very good for some of the mountain bikers who had chosen to ride mountain bikes in this race, as they often always do, but knowing that they're going to be at a disadvantage on the road section. And then, of course, that hike-a-bike, which um, you might as well just put a handle on your bike because you're going to carry it for the better part of 20 minutes or so. Um, so after the race started, big pack moving out. They had a rolling start to the bottom of the first climb. And then on the first climb of the course, Tom Detweiler, an elite road and cross racer out of Philadelphia, immediately went to the front and pushed the pace. No attack, no surge, just a grinding assault on the slope with Polish rider Thomas Golas keeping the pace really high. Toasted Head Racing's wonder kid, Ryan Serbel, took the toe and later related to having to go pretty, pretty deep to hold on to their wheels. He said they were just moving. Serbel was riding on a almost a brand new cross bike to him. He is primarily a mountain bike racer. We've talked about him many times as the up and comer into the NUA series. Um, but to th this weekend, he was racing a cross bike that was brand new. Um, he doesn't ride that much road. He doesn't ride that much uh, cyclocross. And he was riding on a, almost a brand new bike, but he was able to hold their wheels as they took off up this climb. By the top, the trio had nearly two minutes on a group behind him, and then they began to work together a little bit. Serbo would later relate that it was just a little bit they weren't working together on the climb, certainly. They were each pushing the pace pretty well. He was doing his best just to hold on to their wheels. But once they kind of peeked over the top of the climb, a little bit more of a friendly atmosphere developed as they started to work together. It wasn't long after that Serbel was on a short section of double track. He found a branch lodged in his rear, rear derailleur requiring him to come to a stop. He was able to quickly fix that, but not before losing about 30 seconds on those two up front. He was really worried that those, those two were really going to push the pace working together. But Serbo was able to actually catch them really? just after the pair hit a long pavement section. So luckily for him, he was able to catch them on a short downhill and get on their wheels before the pavement. Because certainly as the two hit the pavement, both of them being uh Road riders, they certainly would have worked together on the pavement and probably would have put Serbel in, in their rearview mirrors. Um, but the three worked together well on the pavement, growing their gap, and then the leaders hit a little bit of single track. The mountain biker in Serbel showed his technique and quickly gapped off those two behind him, despite being on a brand new cyclocross bike. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, technique is technique is technique. I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, you, you, you know how to ride single track, put a different bike under you and, you're probably still going to know where to be in each corner. So yeah, which lines to take. Exactly. So back into the hills and onto the dirt roads, and Detweiler had started to really stretch the elastic to his companion, often leading many of the climbs. He attempted the bridge to Serbel, who at one point had eked out a two-minute or so gap just prior to the run-up. Now, this run-up was, as we've talked about, absolutely ridiculous. It's only 0.8 miles, um, but it averages like 25 or 30%, and it is over 
boulders. I mean, literally like garbage can sized boulders. Um, the, the pictures from it are absolutely, uh, ridiculous. Um, and it was slow going and Serbel would later relate to hearing someone coming up behind him. Um, but he refused to look back and, that that goes back to that thing of you know you're climbing so slowly up this this run up that you have to realize that someone may be just a hundred yards behind you, but they may be five minutes back. I mean, who knows how long it's going to take you to climb certain sections? Yeah, once you hit the road at at the top, right? Yeah, they're they're, exactly. they're, they're, they're still walking up yeah, the hills. Exactly. Um, Jess Kelly, who told me about the race, um, would go on to finish fifth overall. He recounted on the run up that he was afraid to look behind because he knew the time gaps would appear way closer than they actually were. Serbel admitted to not looking back, and just after the top of the run-up, he admitted that he had not done well on. The lead moto came up and said the gap was just 40 seconds. So it had gone from two minutes to just 40 seconds back to Detweiler, who still kind of had um, Golas in tow. Serbel, however, put his head down and just drilled it, um, taking that 40-second gap after the run-up and laying down a pace that would extend it to nearly an eight-minute gap at the Williamsport City Limit sign. Behind them, Zerbel and a strong riding Golas was keeping um, Detweiler watching his back as that time gap was staying to less than a minute for the majority of the second half of the course. Up front, Ryan Serbel of Toasted Head Racing would ride into Williamsport for the win in four hours and eight minutes in miserably cold conditions for a mid-October race. Uh, Pennsylvania Masters team Detweiler would take second over eight minutes back with Golas finishing just one minute later in third overall and taking the 40-plus Masters win. Third place in the open men's race would go to Transylvania Epic Elite Mountain Bike Rider Aaron Snyder in four hours and 27 minutes with Serbel's Toasted Head racing teammate Jess Kelly, who had a very interesting day, including a flat or two, a few other issues, and racing on a fully suspended mountain bike to take fifth overall and second in the 40-plus division. Wow. Um, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's pretty impressive considering the different terrain. Jess seemed to think that it actually benefited him. Yeah. But, man, that's... That's still impressive. It's a little more bike to haul up the uh, that's a the boulders too. Haul. Yeah, yeah. And Jess doesn't have a light bike either because he's got all kinds of stuff on his bike. And anybody that has raced Jess Kelly knows what I'm talking about. Um, he's got a unique uh, bottle feed system, uh, hydration system on the bike. Mm-hmm. He has a fully suspended mountain bike. He has a dropper post system on his bike. He has. Um, his bars taped up so that he can go into a time trial position. So it's not a light bike by any means. Um, the only thing that he did change on the bike, he said, was to put on much narrow tires, more along the lines of a cross tire. Um, but other than that, he had a relatively heavy bike, probably the likely the heaviest bike, um, certainly in the top end of the race. Um, in the women's race, very tight racing overall, with the top four women separated only by 10 minutes at the finish. But Vanessa McCaffrey of a regional stands no tubes ultimately takes the win with aggressive riding in the second half of the course, showing that the elite cyclocross racer actually has the ability to race quite a bit longer than your typical cross race. Top step for her in a finish time of five hours, six minutes, with second place just right behind, less than four minutes back in five hours and 10 minutes in the form of breakaway bikes, Stephanie uh, Sidlick. In a nail-biter right down the front street in Williamsport for the third step, Colavita Cycling's Katarina Dowichuk 
edges out Bonnie Osborne by just four seconds. Probably some exciting racing there at the finish when the women's race for the final step of the podium. So really cool racing, very iconic race there. And I'm glad to see that the success of that race, despite moving to a new venue, um, has continued. And they have definitely brought up a course worthy of Iron Cross. Yeah. Um, let's go overseas. Let's do some international stuff. We have a couple international stage races to go over. Let's do the, uh, the Croc Trophy. Yeah, let's do Croc Trophy first. Um, Croc Trophy. Now, the cool thing about Croc Trophy is, is that it is run in a true stage race format in that there are solo riders. It's not a duo format. It's a true stage race, mountain bike stage race. Um, nine stages. 440 miles, like you said, nine stages, 60,000 feet of climbing. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, that makes for a great week in some great temperatures uh, in Australia. Always interesting to see who shows up. Some years, it's mostly Aussies, like last year I covered the race, mostly Aussies in the top 10. Uh, some years, a huge European contingent, like this year. Urs Huber, who we'd mentioned previously, having won that marathon UCI series for the year, was on hand and certainly the favorite after winning it two previous times. Now, he's taken a couple years off in the previous couple years, and it was interesting to see how he would fare coming into this. It's always late season for him, and it's going to be interesting to see how he would lay down some good performance, or is this kind of an afterthought to his season? So after stage one, I thought that perhaps the experts and myself, who were overconfident in Huber, with Nicholas Patina of Italy, taking down Huber and everyone else by over three minutes and grabbing the GC in the process, I thought perhaps we were wrong. That Huber was in this for, you know, a little added race at the end of the year, see where he was. But Huber showed who was a boss in over the remainder of the course, taking seven of the nine stages and mounting an assault on the GC that was never conservative in getting the lead. Even after he had a huge gap, to the rest of the field, he was still working for stage wins. He took stage two, erasing the three-minute GC deficit, and he would allow only four riders to finish the race within an hour of his overall time, with Soren Henson of Denmark in second, Brendan Johnson of Australia in third, and Nicholas Patina, who'd been that first stage one winner, in fourth. Patina was arguably the second strongest rider in the race, but had some really bad luck over many of the stages, poorly timed mechanicals, and uh, a few issues that were out of his control. Likely would have finished higher, but mountain bike racing is mountain bike racing, and you never know yep. how it's going to come out. But Huber's third win overall of the race, he won seven stages. In the women's, only one elite women's finisher, Sarah White of Australia, can pad her Palmares with a Croc Trophy GC win after the only other entrant dropped out mid-race. Um, so regardless of how many people are in the race, Sarah White can say, 2015, you know, no, Nobody trophy. else had the guts to enter. <laughs> so, that's right. Um, so it was interesting to see how that... That's a lot. I mean, nine nine stages. You put, you, put, you put... Exactly. You put Huber into a race... Um, I mean, the, the machine is going to take over the physiology of someone who trains for that kind of stuff all the time and probably puts in more miles on his mountain bike than most people put on, in on their road bike. Yeah, he's going to 
he's going to really, 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 really do well. Interestingly, there weren't a ton of Australian riders that we've heard of in the past. Jason English has done this race. Several other people have done this race who we've heard of. You didn't see a lot of those guys. You also didn't see a lot of the typical XC pros, the guys that we see at the World Cup events, um, dropping into this race, though you did see a big um, international contingent showing up. So interesting racing down there at the Croc Trophy. Um, the other big stage race was the Brazil Rise. Super hot conditions this year. This race is run in a duo format. So two-person, very similar to the Cape Epic. Just ridiculously hot and humid. Exactly what you would expect in Brazil, right? I mean, you wouldn't expect... When you say uh, duo format, Mark, what do you mean? Uh, just, I mean, the, the duo format where each um, there's a two-person team. They have to stay together. They have to finish. Okay. It depends on the race. I think most races, it's a you have to finish within five minutes of your partner or you get um, time deducted. There are time penalties for finishing okay. uh, outside of that. And so it's, it's, yeah, a, it's not a relay. It's an no, it's a, yeah, it's a true, it's a they true stage race, but yeah. you have to stay, you have to race with your partner. And most yeah. of the time it's, it's a, uh, they stay very close to each other because they can help each other out with mechanicals. Oftentimes they don't carry as much, um, equipment or tools or things like that. Right. So they, cause they, you know, one Allen wrench will work for both of us. Uh, you know, so many tubes will work for both of us. So they, it, it's an interesting format. It's not something that is very popular here in the United States. Um, I know, uh, the Pisgah stage race, for example, last year actually experimented with it. Uh, but for the most part, it's just not picked up the, I don't know. It's just not picked up the popularity that it has elsewhere. And many of the UCI stage races, the big ones, I'm talking like Tour of Andalusia, uh, Cape Epic, uh, Brazil Ride, for example, those are all run in this duo format, uh, Tour, of Al- Tour of the Alps and things like that. So I don't, I don't know why it's not popular in the United States. I think it's just a little bit too different. Many people come into mountain bike racing and kind of understand the way the Tour de France is run, or at least have a, you know, even if you don't follow it, you kind of understand how it works. Um, yeah. With a duo format, it's just a, it's just a little bit different. But anyhow, Hans Becking and Jiri Novak sat in second for the first three stages of the race, then made their big move on stage four to vault into the lead and then capitalize on the mistakes of the faltering OCE, Cannondale's Hugo Prado and Lucas Kaufman pushed the gap on GC to over 15 minutes after stage five and 40 minutes after stage six and to their final gap when the event I guess they won by 45 minutes or so. Um, but anyhow, superior Bart Brenchen's mountain bike team of Becking and Novak win the Brazil race 2015 very handily, despite um, the first three stages where they weren't leading. Uh, I think that was probably just some, some conservative play to know how they were going to deal with the heat and the humidity and the temperatures, let the race play out in front of them, and then push it into the days when all the other teams have fatigue. In the women's race, it was never a race with winners. Reze Gallo and Vivian Faveri seating time only on the last stage that perhaps may have just been a conservative play to not make any mistakes to end their race on the final day. But the Brazil Specialized Women's Elite Team takes the GC handily. And when I say handily, I mean handily. Three and a half hour winning Gap back to second place. Second place was Isabella Lacerde and Team USA rider uh, Nina Baum, who had won the event last year with her partner last year, Asanya Looney. Uh, but they end up on the second step this year. 
though they did lose over three hours, as I'd previously mentioned. They still placed nearly three and a half hours in front of the third-place women's team, but definitely some stiff competition. Very, very, very hot, 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 humid conditions um, that had uh, many riders complaining of there were some issues with um, water and hydration and um, some of the stuff that was provided by the um, event there. Um, the cool thing about this race and perhaps the not so cool thing about this race this year is that everything is provided, including um, tents for each team to stay in. All the food is provided for the teams, things like that. But the bad thing about that was is it probably wasn't cool. So you're sleeping in tents and 90 degree temperatures and high humidity. You're probably not getting a lot of restful sleep. And even though all that stuff was provided in the one pay or one price kind of structure. I mean, they probably were not recovering as well as they had hoped and probably were chronically dehydrated after probably the first or second day. Hey, Um, like we said, pay for your flight there. Yeah. 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 Then have the most miserable week of your life. So (laughs) Um, just get get down here. We got a tent for you. Yeah. So pretty cool. Um, Brazil rides uh, a kind of a growing race. It's kind of one of those destination races, but they also always have some pretty competitive elites showing up to try to add to their res- race resume um, with a win there. So that's how that all went down there in Brazil. Um, I think that's all of the races we have to cover. I think we have some yeah. some other issues to discuss. If you're a race director or promoter and you want us to cover your event and let me tell you, there are races that we cover primarily because we find out about them from you guys, the listener, the race director, the fan of endurance mountain bike racing. Please let us know. Send myself, Mark, at mountainbikeradio.com or Steve at mountainbikeradio.com. Let us know a race you want us to find out about, and we'll tell you how you need to get on here. We, we generally don't want to just give you results. We want to know the stories behind the races, but that is really easy for you to do and get in touch with us. We will follow the race. We will report on the race um, and we will really form a story around your race. And we want the listeners to know about all those races that are around the country that perhaps we are not covering. Cause I know there are plenty that we are not covering, but plenty with great, great, stories. So on an interesting side note, um, I forgot to mention it back in the news section. The last aid station is on Twitter now. Yes. So tweet us, tweet us, quote us, whatever you do. What'd you call um, me? Yeah, exactly. Bites me love. And we want you to like us on there. So anyhow, the it's at last aid station.com or at last aid station. It's not the last aid station because Twitter like their 140 characters. They also limit the length of your name, but it's last aid station on Twitter. <clears throat> Check us out. Take a look at us. We really want to start using that to keep in touch with folks, people letting you know when we have new stuff coming out, new news and stuff that may be coming out news and things that we want to let you know about maybe between podcasts before we have a chance to discuss it. So. Sweet. Hey Mark, do we, uh, we got time to get into some discussion topic or yeah, let's, let's just talk about, um, I mean, it's, it's coming to that time of year where everyone's planning next year. Now I would bet anybody that races endurance mountain bike racing has already tried to figure out what races they're doing next year. Now it may not be that you're buying a 2016 calendar and you know, highlighting the race weekends because many, many of the races just simply haven't 
put hard and fast uh, dates out there yet, or maybe a series hasn't done that or what have you. But you've probably tried to figure out if you've got a favorite race that you're going to want to do this year. Generally, what weekend that race falls on. Or yeah, you kind of know race. when they happen, right? I don't know. Right. And so you've probably already planned out a little bit of your training. You know, when I need to start getting out of like some base mileage and start putting in some work as far as, you know, threshold training or whatever. However, you're going to be doing the training for these events, or maybe you just have mileage um, goals that you want to set as you approach some of the longer races of the season. But we, we also want to talk about is how you plan out your race calendar. And specifically, we want to talk about is traveling to races. How far are you willing to travel to a race? And I'm going to put a question up there on our Facebook page. How far are you willing to travel to a race? But now I want to know, Steve, you have a unique take on racing uh, with your family and things like that. How far are you willing to travel to a race? Yeah, I, I'm uh, I'm trying to figure that out. So the furthest I've traveled is uh, 700 and some miles, and that was for the Mata Hay race. And I, so typically we'll travel two hours, four hours. A week in the spring, early summer, we did some XC events, and, and we make a whole weekend out of it. It's a family event. My kids will do the kids races and that kind of thing. Uh, but we get a travel trailer. We'll we haul our trailer out to the Mata Hay and visited the national park and stuff. And, um, but, but yeah, I, you know, you hear about people, uh, some of the pros that they're flying out to races and that type of thing. And, and, uh, you know, a 700 some mile pull, that's, that's a long drive, especially pulling a travel trailer or trying to make a family vacation out of it. But the ones that are really curious to me is like, I'd love to go check out some Epic Ride events. Yeah. And that, that's 1100, 1200 miles for, for me, you know, and that's, that's also prior to kids getting out of school where, you know, I'd have to pull them out of school for a week to make a family trip out of it. So, so Kohut is on my list. And, uh, so I've been mapping that out. I'm a nerd. I, I've got a spreadsheet of all the races that I want to do. Yeah. Um, put together and and like how many hours I think it's going to take me to drive to them. So there, there's a couple there that it's probably going to be me and my, you know, uh, little Ford focus with a tent. Road right. trip in it, maybe maybe try to carpool with somebody. I got a flexible schedule because I I work for myself, but but yeah, I, it's, it's, you can't just take off and right go. So um, that being nobody's nobody's paying for my racing, right? And you know, personally for me, traveling to some of these races, um, it really depends on the race. For the most part, for me, I don't know if I have a distance. You know, this year is going to be very different for me because I. I've made it a goal or not really a goal, but my motivation this year is to go do those bucket list events that are in my mind that I want to do that I may never get a chance to do again, or maybe I've never got a chance to do because I've always been involved in other things. And this year, there's a lot of races that I want to do that never got a chance to do. Now, some of those may be close to home. Um, For example, uh, Hilly Billy Bay is one that I've, promised JR that I would come up and do. And I've never gotten a chance to do it last two years. And this year I'm going to go up and do it. I just want to go do that race. It's an amazing race. I've heard nothing but good things about it. And I want to go do that race. I also want to go out West. Um, I would love to go out and do true grit and yeah, I mean that man, it's early season for me, but you know what? <laughs> I, I, it's just, it's just, 
I would love to go out there and ride that stuff. You know, my wife has, has said that she would love to go out to that part of the country, but I don't think she wants to go out to that part of the country and watch me race for a day. <laughs> so that race right. falls on the, the Saturday starting my kid's spring break. <laughs> and, and so yeah, I've already had that discussion. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, it, it's just a, it's a long, it's a long. Yeah. Haul. We've done Moab before for spring yeah. break, and True Grits like another day's drive. I think. But I mean, I think we we had, we had created a discussion. And originally, listeners, our, our discussion was going to be how far are you willing to travel to a race. But I think I don't think that's a really a closed ended question. I mean, uh, you know, depends on the depends race. Depends on the race, and it depends on what your goals are for the year. Um, you know, some of the things. You know, when do you fly? When do you drive? Uh, my thing is, is that. If it's going to be an A race for me and I'm not going to be sleeping in a tent, um, and I'm going to just, I'll, I'll probably, I would probably fly to a race that's going to be more than a day's drive. I don't want to drive two days, sleep in a tent, you know, race, drive two days. <laughs> that's a lot of driving and I probably would fly to something like that. Um, but on the flip side, um, I can't really incorporate my wife in something like that. Um, she doesn't race mountain bikes as much as she likes watching me race mountain bikes. She doesn't race mountain bikes. And I feel bad her sitting in a car for two days, watching me race for a day and then sitting in a car for two days. It really depends. I mean, those, some of those are solo trips and some of those are trips that we would make yeah. together. And it really also depends on what her interests are. I mean, we all run that balance, so to speak, of what you're willing to put your spouse through for your own benefit. <laughs> um, she would, she would agree to let me do anything, but um, you know, sometimes, sometimes though, but honestly, sometimes I do best at races where I don't have to worry about how bored she is or how, you know, all those little things when I can just go to a race, stay in a hotel, I get up, I race, I come home. Um, and I've, yeah. I did, I did several of those races this year and, and I have not, I had not done that yet. So I, I think, I think I had my wife and kids where they were at every race with me this right. year. Even I went, I went and did a couple road races in the spring and we did some spring camping trips for them. But the, uh, the long haul ones, you know, I don't want the kids sitting in the car all yeah. summer, you know? Right. And, and you know, it, it really, I mean, it, it, there's so many different ways that people do this. Um, the way I roll, I'm probably going to end up booking the race and then figure it out. Later. Right. I mean, and it all depends. It all depends on what you want to get out of it. You know, um, um, there, you get so many different types of people in endurance racing. So the, you know, the people that are in it for the adventure, which is a little bit uh, for me as well. It's that's all part of the adventure, right? Like it takes you to, takes you to new places, takes you to places you haven't been before. And, and that kind right. of thing too. I kind of recklessly threw myself at all this stuff this past year. And I, for me, it was a, a big adventure. I, I want to get a little more serious about it next year. Um, but there'll always be the adventure side of it for me. Lots, I think there's, it's just a cool discussion to talk about. I mean, I'd love to hear um, what other, how other people approach it, but I, I can guarantee that everybody's got such a varied opinion on what works for them or what they found they love doing. You know, it, what works for you and to get your best result may not be what you love doing. Close things out. I, I, I don't know if it's new or kind of a fun thing, but like I've got a, a six and a seven year old, soon to be eight, but. They, they get out on the single track with me and I, I actually set my six year old up with lights after a, a trail ride last That's week. That's really cool. And, uh, he did his first night ride. We, we had already ridden around nine miles or so of single track. He was pretty wore out, but he wanted to try the lights out. So we hung out till it was, till it was dark. He got to do about a half a mile of trail with, with my lights. 
So that's really cool that to get them introduced cool. to that early. Cause I mean, that just opens up. I mean, I, I didn't start riding with lights until, you know, I was well into my almost probably college when I started riding like mountain bikes on trails. And then at the time, of course, the lights, you know, they're nowhere near what they are now, but, um, yeah. It just opened up like I was like, oh my gosh, I can ride at night. This is totally different, but it's fine. It's different. It's yeah, yeah. It just opened up like now. You, I mean, I would literally be days where I just wanted to ride at night because I liked it. It was so new. I just wanted to do it more, and so that's it's fine. what it's one of the things that actually last year sold me on going ahead and getting a fat bike because I I didn't get one the previous year. I, I one I was still just getting back into riding again, and I was like, well, I'm never gonna ride the thing because. It's I'm in northern Minnesota. It's like dark 20 hours a day in the winter. And uh, I went for a night ride in the fall just on my XC bike. And I was like, this is awesome. Totally different experience. And I was yeah. like, I'm going to get a fat yeah. bike because I, like, I actually, like night riding. There's actually a couple of races in the southeast. Um, there's a local race here in the <clears throat> in Raleigh that uh, is half during the day, half at night. And that's really kind okay. of a cool approach. You know, like it starts at yeah. three. It's a six-hour race. It goes from three to nine. <clears throat> so you're racing part of that day. Um, there's yeah. also a whole night series down in Alabama and Georgia where they race the entire, like it runs from 10 o'clock at night. to Yeah. 10 I've heard about and those. That's a really cool approach. And um, yeah. you, know, you get that whole idea of racing 24 hours without actually racing 24 hours. Um, so, um, yeah. you know, it's kind of cool to race without being zonked and tired. You're racing at night. It's just a yeah. different way of doing it without actually racing all the way through the day and into the night with the lights. So, so how about um, you? How's that? Uh, how's that kicker? So the kicker, I've just been playing with it a little bit. I haven't done any quality training on it yet. It has the ability to do that where you set the power and it makes sure that power stays the same. And so you're either turning the pedals or you're not doing the workout. Um, it also has like, um, you know, you can set a workout into it where it actually changes the power based on what intervals you're going to do. That's right. Um, and then, but the one thing I've been doing is, is, uh, Zwift, which is a simulation thing where you know, the screen looks like a, rider riding and there's other people on there and it's almost like a race simulation or yeah. ride simulation. It's kind of cool. You can draft people, you can you know, attack people, you can go for sprint points. It's all that kind of stuff. And they have, they only have two courses right now, but one is the Richmond's world's course. Really kind of cool to actually ride on that course and see what the, what kind of power you need to do to climb some of those hills. It's, it's kind of cool. I haven't done anything specific with it yet. Just been playing with it, but so far, yeah, it's it's a lot of fun, and it's made me. I would still wouldn't say I like riding indoors, but it it's very tolerable now, much more tolerable, and I don't Better. mind. I don't mind riding indoors now. The one thing I wanted to mention to everybody before we sign off for the day, I came across something that I wanted to make sure everybody knows about. So I use uh, for backcountry riding, and even for trail systems that you. Um, in big parks, mountain bike friendly, everything. Um, I use the Avenza app on my iPhone and it's also available for several other platforms, but the Avenza app is a um, PDF reader that also it puts your GPS location on the map. It's a high quality, you download high quality maps, you know, high definition maps, and then it actually puts your route on there. Um, so you actually have trail systems, Pisgah, and DuPont are two of the ones I really use a lot of the time because I don't know my way through there and I will eventually get more than a little lost if I didn't have some kind of map there. But it keeps you from, you know, you've got your phone. It allows you to follow it digitally without having to carry a map, though I always still carry a paper map just in case. But the cool thing that I wanted to let everybody know is, is that the USGS, 
which puts out all the maps for the federal government, has now put out digital copies of almost every map they have in their storage, in their files. Now, you still have to pay for their paper copies, but the PDF versions of their USGS maps, um, all all their topo maps, they're out there and you can download them for free and we'll put the link up on the site and the Avenza app actually reads those. The bad thing though about the USGS maps is um, that they don't for the most part don't have trails on them only because they are historical maps and they, you know, those trails change and things like that. Um, but they are in what they call geo PDF which allows you to take layers on and layers off. So you could take roads off. You could take the topographic features off. You could take cities and towns off the map and only be left with whatever you were specifically looking at. So it's got layers that you can actually hide. Can these be uh, loaded on a, on a garment or whatever too? I'm not sure if they can be loaded. I'd imagine there are plenty. Um, it, being that they're PDF, I'm not sure. Yeah, I, that's true. I would doubt a PDF yeah. can be. Um, I would almost probably be sure yeah, I guess they it cannot. Be, yeah. um, but they can be used by, I mean, and it, I use the Avenza app. I found oh. it works phenomenally. But okay. there are other apps out there that um, I'm sure work probably just as well. Um, but anyhow, I just want to let everybody know about those. So the USGS has released almost all of their topographic maps, including different versions. So you want to see the 1950s version of Yosemite versus the current version of Yosemite. It's that you can get them both, download them and compare it side by side. So it's kind of cool to actually see those. Now, if you like, like I said, again, if you want the printed version, you're going to have to pay for that or you're going to have to download it and print it yourself. But they're out there for free for a digital download. And yeah, that's pretty cool. Up, so. so thank you, everybody, for joining us here on The Last Aid Station. Ran a little bit long, but we're not too bad yet. But I want to thank everybody for continuing to be with us as we're continuing to try to put out as much information, news, highlights of off-road mountain bike racing and gravel racing. And maybe we'll even get into some ultra bike pack racing as the winter starts to roll into some big ultras up in uh, the north and Alaska and things like that. But we're really looking forward to covering those races for you. Um, and we're also looking forward to having Steve report on some fat bike racing as he really started into his season up there. So, Steve, anything else to say? No, it's uh, it's going to be a fun winter. And uh, just another reminder, Last Aid Station is on Twitter now. Yeah, Last Aid Station is on Twitter. So thank you very much for joining us. And we'll see you soon.